bum bum bottom 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 you are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. Hey, I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. This month we're swinging through the skyscrapers of New York City with Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson, and we're applying Love Types by Alexander Avila to their relationship woes. Lisa. Yes. We've been challenged. Uh, listeners, you know that's specifically not allowed. I'm we are f- always infallible and correct. They disagree. They disagree. Boo. Uh, <laughs> after last week's episode, when we labeled Mary Jane Watson as she appeared in the original graphic novel Parallel Lives as an extrovert, listener Michael Bode, a.k.a. at M-G-B-O-D-E underscore W-F-N-Y on Twitter, felt compelled to respond. Uh, This is what he had to say. Okay. Great discussion on one of the best couples in the comic universe. Possibly a hot take. Are we sure MJ is an E, an extrovert, on that scale? Meaning the Myers-Briggs scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her outwardly persona obviously is, but as you both noted, it's her mask, not her true self. And then he quotes MJ from Parallel Lives. If they only knew. Right. I did see this tweet. And immediately I got defensive. I was <laughs> As like, of you're course I'm to right. Do. <laughs> <laughs> but I really did start thinking about what it means to be an extrovert mm-hmm. versus an introvert and what it would be like to be an introvert like myself who feels the social pressure to fake extroversion every day of my life. Yeah, you do not do that. I don't. I can't. But you, well, that's not true. I mean, sometimes we go out to social occasions and you are able to put on a face. Maybe not full Mary Jane Watson, but you put on a face. I think even myself, who I guess we've dubbed as an extrovert between the two of us, you know, when I go out into certain social interactions, I also put a face on. You know, there is a a level of um, presenting yourself one way that's not necessarily the way it is back home. Right. And particularly early in our relationship, I would go out to film club or book club and put on this face. And you'll think I'm acting completely normal the whole time. Like, look at Lisa. She's so bubbly. But then I would go home and cry, which is a lot of what MJ would do. She would go out, she would party, then she would come home and she would cry. So do you feel like MJ is an introvert like yourself putting on a disguise of an extrovert? What I came down to, the conclusion I came down to is that someone like introversion or extroversion is not really an ironclad thing. It's just kind of a preference. And would someone who is actually introverted, introverted, choose a party girl persona full time? Because then is that her preference? If we're comparing the two of you. In those situations, social pressures would put you in a film club situation, in a 
comic book convention in a film festival or whatever. And, and those social pressures being maybe uh, a strong suggestion by your husband to let's go do this thing tonight. But that's not how I recover. Mm-hmm. Like she is having all of these issues at home and the way she recovers and restores her energy is she goes out. I go to these Parties. Parties or whatever, social situations, and then I go home to recover. But that's not really an option for her either because her home sucks. But what I'm saying is, in her case, the reason I believe she is still an extrovert is because her instinct to cover for her sad feelings is to go out, is to party. Right, and that's what I'm saying, too. Okay, yeah, so we're on the same page. Uh, I I think— But to his point— To Michael's point. To Michael's point— if she is an introvert, faking extroversion, that does also go with the overall theme of parallel lives. Because before Peter Parker, Mary right. Jane was behaving in a way that was ultimately unfulfilling and unsustainable. And possibly harmful. And possibly harmful to herself. So that idea of finding Peter Parker and not feeling that need for that mask anymore... We don't see so much of their behavior past like the end of the book where they where we see that really Peter Parker and Mary Jane, according to parallel lives, is a balancing force in each other's lives. Peter being this balancing force, we don't see how that affects her extroversion overall. Yeah, through the continuity established in parallel lives. Yeah, Right. right. Absolutely. But it is interesting when other writers go to tackle this couple, they are still presenting Mary Jane as an extreme extrovert. Right. And she goes on to be a supermodel and an actress. And she continues to go to parties and glamorous events and all of those things. And yeah, occasionally she has feelings about them. Awkwardness, tiredness, that kind of thing. But her preference seems to me to be to go out but to even recover. On the Myers Briggs scale, or what we're talking about with Dr. Avia, um, Extroverts aren't without Introversion tendencies. And and introverts have their extroverted tendencies. Everybody is on this sliding scale. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that's true in the Myers-Briggs. A lot of times when you take a Myers-Briggs, they'll give you a percentage. Like, you're 70% introverted, 3% whatever the opposite is. I can't remember (laughs) what he said. But... um, You'll see with Dr. Avila and his love types test, which we took this week, he also presents kind of a scale where you could be moderately one or the other. Right, right. But you still have to have one binary preference. Mm -hmm. There's there's no term for exactly in the middle. Hmm. Okay. All right. Michael, uh, that's some food for thought. Uh, hit us back up. Let's I'm not dismissing it. Right, and well, that's that's the great thing about covering a couple over the course of a month and four separate storylines is that, you know, our opinion on these characters might change by the end of this episode, right? Right. So let's- And I know that with uh, fandom, our opinion of a character 
can feel sacred sometimes. And when that's <laughs> challenged, yeah. it can bring up some kind of complicated emotions. Ooh, ooh. Let's let's put a button on that, Lisa, till the ooh. end of this episode. Oh, how exciting. Uh, let's get into it. Let's get into it. This week, we are discussing the sensational Spider-Man annual number one, written by Matt Fraction and illustrated by Salvador LaRocca. Uh, going into this episode, Lisa and I were already huge Matt Fraction fans, thanks to his work with David on Marvel's Hawkeye, as well as his turn on FF with Mike Allred. Yeah, one of my favorite artists. For sure. And you can bet that uh, Fraction's work will return to CBCC sooner rather than later. Spoilers, guys, it's going to be way sooner. (laughs) Uh, This guy has built a little bit of a legendary status around himself. Fraction is actually his pen name. What? As he was born Matthew Frickman. Uh, Good move. On December 1st, 1975 in Chicago. Another December birthday, Lisa. He's not a Christmas baby like me, though, so I don't consider ourselves in the same class of December birthdays. So you have no sympathy for the December 1st babies? I do not. <laughs> though my nephew is also a December 1st baby, Max. And, but, do you have, but you still don't have sympathy for him and the problems that you felt as being born on December 27th. Yeah, I've got it the worst. Yeah, okay, okay. Well, I think the people who have it the worst are the people born on the 25th. But everybody says that, meaning that... December 25th babies always get more sympathy than December 27th babies. Supporting my point that December 27th is the worst birthday. (laughs) Uh, Matt Fraction was a comic book kid devouring them from an early age. He actually remembers the first comic he ever read at the age of four. And I love this kind of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any guesses, Lisa? What do you think four-year-old Matt Fraction was reading? Of course I can, Brad. I'm reading it in your notes. Hey, that's no fair. Uh, Yeah, so he picked up at age four Batman issue number 316 featuring special guest star Robin as the dynamic duo go up against the villainous crazy quilt in The Man Who Stole His Eyes. I love Crazy Quilt. I don't know. The first thing about Crazy Quilt, I don't think. We need to dive back into the animated series Batman the Brave and the Bold. Uh-huh. There's some pretty good Crazy Quilt stuff there. Okay. Uh, about a decade later, when Crisis of Infinite Earths was being published, is when Fraction became a weekly comic book obsessive. In the late 1990s, he was working at the North Carolina comic book shop, Heroes Aren't Hard to Find. What a great name for a comic book shop. And he was posting online under a Warren Ellis forum using the name Matt Fraction. He started working in comics with publishers like IDW and AIT and garnered some critical acclaim with books like The Five Fists of Science and Casanova. Um, The first time I actually ever read his work was when he partnered with Ed Brubaker on the Immortal Iron Fist series at Marvel. And from there, he went on to do things like The Mighty Thor, The Invincible Iron Man, Hawkeye, and Fantastic Four. These days, he's probably most recognized as the co-creator of Sex Criminals with Chip Zdarsky and Odyssey with Christian Ward. A real favorite of Lisa's, guys. Uh, <laughs> that's a He's joke. being sarcastic. Lisa and I did Odyssey for one of our graphic novel book clubs. Not into it. No, yeah, not my thing. I love Christian Ward's art, but it just was not my thing. Uh, Fraction is famously known for being married to fellow comic book scribe Kelly Sue DeConnick, who we've talked briefly about during our Aquaman podcast series. The two met on that Warren Ellis forums back in the day, and they've got to be the hippest real-life comic book couple in comics. Uh, What do you think, Lisa? They're pretty hip. 
I mean, second to us. I think we're the hippest. Correct. Okay. Okay. I'll <laughs> go with that. I'll go with that. Uh, I appreciate your ego. I need to boost my own. Fraction never did any serious time on Spider-Man comics, and this annual is a little bit of a fling for him. Uh, but this book made a tremendous impact on fans and can be found on most lists focusing on the best Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson storylines. But we'll be the judge of that. That as we will. The hippest couple in comics. Oh yeah. Right. You've dubbed us that, Lisa. You've crowned us that title. I'm going to live up to it. You better. Uh, Okay. So as we said at the start of the show, we are using Love Types by Dr. Alexander Avila. I keep wanting to say Avila. I say Avila. Avila? Avila? I'm going to say it like six or seven different ways. But anyway, we're using his book, Love Types, to talk about Peter Parker and Mary Jane. How are we going to do that for the Sensational Spider-Man Annual Number 1? Well, last week, when we discussed chapter one of Love Types, Dr. Evelyn describes dating as a masquerade, where we're all presenting how we wish to be perceived. We fall in love with the presentation only to find out that we're not compatible with the actual person. Right. Brad and I took a free version of the Myers-Briggs on 16personalities.com. I got INFP which is what I always get, and Brad got ENFP, which is essentially just the extroverted version of me. And we started speculating on what Myers-Briggs types Peter and MJ might be, which stirred up some controversy. As we (laughs) talked about at the beginning of this episode, is MJ really an extrovert, or can we judge her on her presentation that she herself says is fake? I don't know. I'm still kind of leaning towards Peter Parker being an uh, uh, an I-S-F-J is what I'm still leaning to. Mm -hmm. Do you have any feelings about Peter Parker? I'm super strong on the I. Yeah. And I think because the I and the E are easier to understand, right? Right. Yeah. So I am very confident that Peter Parker is an I up to the point he is bitten by the radioactive spider. And I, there might be some transitioning going on there. Mary Jane, I, yeah, like we said, I'm still, I'm still comfortable thinking that she is an extroverted person. Jay stuff also sort of makes sense to me as well. So with the second uh, dimension, with the S versus the N, I feel like Peter is more sensing because he's a scientist. He deals with data. Uh, Mary Jane, artsy-fartsy type more intuitive, just kind of feeling the way things should go. With the next dimension, which is feeling versus thinking, I think both Peter Parker and Mary Jane are feeling. They're both making decisions based on their emotions. Emotions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. And then... uh, I think all comic book characters are that. Because that creates a lot of drama. Yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but having access to captions and thought balloons, yeah, you you get more Fs than Ts. And I think a lot of villains tend to be T because they're capable of doing like these dastardly deeds because they they can present information that goes like, Ultimately, this is the best choice. Right, the Mad Titan. We got to half this universe. Exactly. Um, The last dimension, judging versus perceiving. I'm still kind of getting a grasp on exactly what this means, but I decided last week to put Peter more on the judging side because he does have to, 
engage with the idea of right versus wrong where perceiving types tend to see everything on more of a spectrum uh, but, justice exactly but now in um our current comic with the state sensational spider-man annual i'm thinking maybe they might both be p hmm. perceiving because they do uh Value spontaneity in their lives where versus more structure. Sure, sure, for sure. Dr. Avila is a psychologist, and the full title of the book we're using for Peter Parker and Mary Jane is Love Types, Discovering Your Romantic Style and Find Your Soulmate. And in this book, Dr. Avila uses the principles behind the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator Test to develop his love type system. The love type system was created to help you identify your personality or love type to bring to a relationship, what types of personalities your love type would be compatible with, how to suss out potential partners by determining their love type, and then when you ultimately find someone with a love type that you desire and you want to spend the rest of your life with them, he says that he can provide the steps to make that person fall in love with you. I still think this sounds like the plan of an arch villain. It does. It really (laughs) does. The roots of Avila's love type system go back to Carl Jung's 1921 text on the psychological types that influence people's judgment. Introverted versus extroverted, intuitive versus sensation, thinking versus feeling. In the 1940s, the mother-daughter team of Isabel Myers and Catherine Briggs developed the Myers-Briggs type indicator test that we talked about last week. In 1992, Dr. Avila developed the love type system based on those principles, and in 1993, he started studying relationship satisfaction in 378 heterosexual couples that were either newly dating from uh, one to three months, engaged, or married at least five years. And he found that regardless of the stage of the relationship, couples tended to be more satisfied when they were more aligned on certain key personality dimensions. So opposites may attract, but it may be that it is similarities that sustain a relationship over time. Dr. Avila presents the four love type dimensions as follows. Dimension number one is the energizing dimension, how you generate life energy. Dimension number two is the focusing dimension, what you pay attention to as you take in information about the world. Number three is the deciding dimension, how you make decisions. And number four is the organizing dimension, how you organize and structure your life. And they're essentially just exactly the same as the Myers-Briggs dimensions and break out in the exact same way, introversion versus extroversion, intuition versus sensing, feeling versus thinking, and perceiving versus judging. But in this particular, he says perceiving means flexibility, spontaneity, lack of structure, and judging is more structured, more scheduled, and more time-sensitive, which I think, to me, feels different than what... The Myers-Briggs is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you, especially after having done the next step here that you're about to talk about. Yes. In Chapter 2, Dr. Avila provides his love-type version of the Myers-Briggs with 24 questions that are supposed to determine your preference on each of the four psychological preferences. So it's seven questions for each duality. 
So, of course, Brad and I took this quiz. <laughs> so, what did you think of Dr. Avila's love type quiz? Uh, there's, there's a few problems with it as I perceive it. Okay. One, I have to go back in time to my dating years, which was non-existent. Let's be real. <laughs> I went on very, very few dates from high school to the point when I met you when I was 27 in the workforce. Like I just did not date. I was terrified to date. So why put myself through it? And th- these questions probe how you behave on dates several times. Right. And my answer to that was, well, I didn't do any of this stuff. And he himself says that when you're on a date, you present yourself how you want to be seen. And so aren't you inaccurate in the first place, according to his own argument? So there's, there's that going on. And then in some cases, like I just straight up said to myself, I don't feel either of these two ways. Yeah. Um, For example, question number seven says, in the past, my loved ones and partners tended to say this about me. E, can't you be quiet and still for once? I, can you come out of your shell, please? Honestly, people never uh, confronted me in a way like that. Now, myself, I might feel one way or the other, but that's not what that question's asking. It's asking what other people have said about me. Right. No, I had that exact same issue with that question where I go like there are times when I'm putting on my extrovert face and I'm trying to be cool and I'm making jokes. But in my head, I'm going, oh, Lisa, please shut up. And the way that he presents the questions in this quiz from the, he give, he tells you this is the E answer, this is the I answer. Right. So if you're going in with a preconceived notion of what your Myers Briggs right. is, yes. you can't, these aren't they're not trying to trick you. They're going like, well, there's an E answer and there's an I answer. So if I already feel like I'm an extrovert, my you know subconscious is pulling me to answer the E. Right. So I don't know. I like I felt much more confident in the test. Of the Myers Briggs, yeah, the sixteen personality, and that one also gave you like a spectrum of answers. Like I, it was all true or false statements, and you could go, I strongly agree, I feel neutral, or I strongly disagree. And what's cool about the Myers Briggs is that it's a spectrum, and you know, you can be many degrees of this thing. It's not an either or situation. And there are kind of degrees. There's because he of, gives uh, kind of degrees in the Avila book. Yeah, there is because he does give seven questions for each. He gives an odd number. So if you answer four of the questions right, e right, right, and right, right. three of the questions I, well then you are a little bit more the E than I. So yeah. he tries okay. to present that, but to mm. me, I like the sixteen personalities of giving you a situation. And then you going, okay, well, I am more likely to behave this way versus that way. Like, literally, the first question is, like, number one, I tend to draw more energy from E, other people, or I, my own thoughts. And I was like, isn't that why we're taking this test? Yeah, I need to answer that. that. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I think that that's weird. Yeah, okay. So, uh, not an exact science doctor. Yeah. So, we've... We've laid our qualms on the table. Those are our concerns. But that being said, what result did you get, Brad? I got an ESFJ. Which is very different than what you actually got on the Myers-Briggs. Practically the opposite of what I got on the Myers-Briggs. Yeah, so 
in the back of his love types books, he does include a an index of each of the personalities with like a little summary. Mm-hmm. So here's the summary for ESFJs. You're the dutiful host. You value <laughs> harmony in your relationship. You display goodwill towards others. You are a great party organizer. Uh, no. You are the perfect host. Uh, I think you are a pretty great host. Am I? And you are very family oriented. Uh, what does it mean by family oriented? Like, I, you know, I'm family oriented with you. I'm loyal to you. I love doing things with you. Mom and dad are pretty cool. Yeah. But we don't have kids and we don't want kids. That's true. That's so, true. Yuck to those. Just out of curiosity, I'm also going to read you his description of the ENFP, which is what you got before on the actual Yeah, Myers-Briggs. please do. Remind me. <laughs> ENFP, according to Dr. Avila, is a social philosopher. You have great interests in relationships, ideas, and discovering the meaning of life. You are people <laughs> affirming. You are outgoing. You are charismatic. You tend to start many things. Oh, Including relationships, oh. but may not finish them. Ooh. How do you finish a relationship? I guess by murdering the other person. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like a lot like, of that is much more me than than ESFJ. Right. I I also think that that describes so what you did, better. What did you end up getting with this test? So as I started this conversation, I have been an INFP right. for my entire life, right. but according to this test, I am an INFJ. Which I've never gotten. And part of it Still an I, though. Still an I. Still an N. Still an F. But a J. But a J. Judging. Judging. That does sound like I am the law. (laughs) So the description of INFJs is the mystic writer. Mm. I am intrigued by psychology, philosophy, mysticism, and spirituality. That's Um, pretty true. Yeah. I am a great listener- I don't know if that's necessarily true. (laughs) No Uh, comment. (laughs) (laughs) I am deeply compassionate. I am usually quiet. Uh, No, no. I will comment (laughs) on that one. That's a negative. I have streaks of extreme stubbornness. Uh, That's more me. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a very stubborn person. And I love reading and writing. That last one is true. So out of curiosity, here is my INFP description. I am an idealistic philosopher. I enjoy the arts, philosophy, and psychology. True. I must have a crusade or mission in life. True. (laughs) I am sensitive. Super true. I am idealistic. Super true. I am generally easygoing until my values are violated. Also Mm -hmm. true. Tend to have high expectations regarding my loved one. So why do you think your results didn't result in like that his label. Test, like his test not resulting is, in a description that suited me. Because I think that while the basis is the same, the Myers-Briggs basis is the same, I think there's something wrong with his actual test. Uh, I think it's uh, just straight up not a good test. It's wonky. Yeah. Which is funny because we bring our own preconceived notions into this test because of the way he structures it, and yet you still didn't come up with an INFP. You would think that would be the case. So there has to be something wrong with the questions themselves. Well, in my specific case, I really disagree with his interpretation of judging Uh, versus perceiving because a lot of... He super focuses on punctuality. Right, right. We were talking about that off air. People who are judging, 
according to him, are always punctual, and they judge everybody who is not punctual. So that's While huge. a perceiving person sees um, time on a spectrum, so they're not going to adhere to a specific time. So when you were answering honestly to the punctuality questions, they were putting you all in the J category, even though really you're not a J. Exactly, because... I will always be on time to a thing because I'm idealistic uh-huh. and I think that being on time for another person is the right thing to do. And I super judge my <laughs> friends who are late and they know that because I find it so frustrating where it's like, well, you made a promise to me. You made a promise to me that you would be here at three o'clock and now you're strolling in at 332 yeah. with your apologies that mean nothing because if you really loved me, you'd show up on time. Um, but to me, like if I'm keeping time with myself, I'm like, okay, Lisa, when it's three o'clock, you're going to sit down and write that article that you've wanted to write. That will never happen. <laughs> like, so when it comes to meeting my own s- expectations, I'm super sp- on the spectrum. But when it comes to of, of does time exist <laughs> where um, meeting other people's expectations, I like to be structured. <laughs> Yeah, it makes things challenging, Lisa. Yeah. So so I think trying to make the Myers-Briggs dating specific disagrees with his original premise that on dates, we're not being ourselves. Okay. On dates, we are trying to be the person we want to present and not the person we are when we're alone by ourselves. All right. All right. What about uh, Peter and Mary Jane? Well, Mary Jane, we've already read her story description because she is an ENFP just like you. So people affirming, outgoing, charismatic, starts many things, likes to work on a lot of stuff at the same time. I think that describes you both pretty well. I don't know about likes to work on many different things at the same time. You don't think so? Because the reason I'm thinking that is because she's a model, she's an actress, she's yeah, a I, wife. She's I got agree a lot with of you about Mary Jane. I'm just saying, I don't know if that's me. Oh, oh, you... I think that you always have, even if they're all articles, I think you always have a lot of irons in the fire. You have It Mod. You have Comic Book Couples Counseling. You have three or four Twitter handles that you are actively <laughs> on. Okay, okay, I take it back. I take you it back. are you working on several articles at the same time. That would drive me crazy. Because just today, I have two things to do. Record this podcast and finishing packing for Comic-Con, and I am losing my mind because I'm like, I can't leave these two loose ends open. You know, it's really nice being married to somebody who knows you better than yourself. So <laughs> I, I concede. So we described Peter tentatively as an ISFJ, which if you read his description and love types, I think is a really excitingly accurate. According to Dr. Avila, the ISFJs are the caretakers. Peter Parker has a strong sense of duty. Peter Parker is usually concerned about the little people in his life, kids, animals, the sick, and the elderly. Aunt May, Mary Jane, he's obsessed with uh, how his life is affecting theirs. To distraction. Yeah. He believes in order a place for everything and everything in its place. That one, I'm not sure if that describes Peter necessarily. Mm. That one, I'm kind of mm, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Finds, he leaves a lot of stuff webbed up throughout the city. Yeah. 
uh, finds happiness by serving practical human needs and taking care of their families. They make families, families. They make great nurses, teachers, and moms slash dads. Is that true? Uh, well, I mean, it depends on the universe that you're reading. Uh, but you know, the renew your vows. Peter Parker's a pretty good dad. Let's read the ISFP. Just so we dot all of our I's and cross all of our T's, just in case this is Peter Parker. The ISFP is gentle artist, has strong artistic tendencies, loves animal and nature, are gentle and caring lovers, ooh, um, are quiet, are flexible. I don't. I, that doesn't I, sound like Peter. Yeah, I don't think that's him. Yeah, I think that I think the, I think the, the caretaker. Sure. <laughs> I think the caretaker is a little bit more accurate. So there we have it. With those descriptions, I feel like we're zeroing in on what. Peter Parker and Mary Jane's love types could be, as well as our, our, own. our love types, I'm the getting hippest couple in comics. more and more confident. Uh, I, fe- I, f- I feel like I have a better understanding, certainly, of the Myers-Briggs idea uh, this episode than I did last episode. Okay, good, good. As we discuss the Sensational Spider-Man annual number one, we'll go deeper into what we think Peter and MJ's love types could be and how that will affect them as a couple. Will it be as we discussed in Parallel Lives that their differing personalities act as stabilizing forces for each other? Are they actually more similar than we thought? Are their differing qualities what attracts them together going to ultimately destroy their relationship? Oh, man. Okay, well, uh, let's get into it. Mm -hmm. Sensational Spider-Man Annual Volume 2, number one, entitled To Have and To Hold, published in July of 2007 and written by Matt Fraction and illustrated by Salvador LaRocca. Uh, Is this our first annual that we've ever read on the podcast? I think so, but... At the same time, I'm not, I don't think I actually know what the hell an annual is. <laughs> As a kid, I hated annuals, right? They come out once a year, hence annual. Ooh. Uh, they were often more expensive than the monthly title. Boo. They often had a different uh, writer uh, involved. Boo. And they often had many different artists. They were, usually were a collection of stories or just a really long story that had nothing to do with the plot that was currently being spearheaded by the monthly uh, writer. So was that Batman one we did about their wedding day, was that an annual? Uh, an annual was involved in that arc. So that's true. We've read some narrative story arcs that have included annuals. Uh, one of the Aquaman trades we read had an annual involved too. Okay. Uh, thankfully, modern comics have started to incorporate the monthly writers in the annual process, but that was not always the case. And like I said, as a kid, it was rarely the case. And that's what's going on here with Matt Fraction jumping on board with the sensational spider Spider-Man. The Wikipedia definition of an annual is as follows. A comic book annual customarily has a larger page count than its monthly counterpart, leaving room for longer single stories, multiple stories in a single annual and or quote unquote extra material that the monthly series lacks the space to publish. It's a cash grab and I've never liked it. So in the case of this particular issue, the sensational Spider-Man, I feel like it's like a bottle episode. It's like self-contained. It really right, yes. doesn't influence. I mean, it's a culmination of what happened before, kind of, and it's kind of a summary. As far as annuals go, I think this is one of the better ones where you can just pick this up and read it and you're good. 
Right. There was still stuff I know, like having not read all of Spider-Man that has ever existed, where I'm just like, who is Robertson? Like, <laughs> I don't know what's going You're on. You're still learning some supporting characters, and that's fine, Lisa. No gatekeeping. What did you think of the actual adjective on this title, though? Sensational Spider-Man. You've seen amazing Spider-Man. You've seen spectacular Spider-Man. But this is your first sensational Spider-Man. About like, how do I feel about the word "sensational"? Yeah, I'm for it. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's it's a fine word. Like to me, does that delineate it from spectacular and amazing as a separate storyline? Like, what's the function of that word? Well, here, not so much. What the function of the word is? This is a different creative team working on this book. Sensational Spider-Man actually spun out of the late 80s and was a place where Marvel could reprint other Spider-Man stories. Then in the 90s, during the whole clone saga madness, the first volume of the Sensational Spider-Man was a place where readers could go to read the adventures of Ben Riley. Do you know about Ben Riley, Lisa? I do not. He's a clone, maybe. Oh. Uh, vo- volume 1 lasted only 35 issues, and Volume 2 actually sprung out of the more adult-themed Marvel Knights Spider-Man title. Adult-themed means boobs, right? Uh, it means, you know, teen plus, teen plus. Okay. So no boobs, but some sex talk. Ew. Uh, and Marvel Knights Spider-Man eventually dropped that branding to become Sensational Spider-Man in 2006. But Ultimate Spider-Man is its own to- storyline. Yeah, we're not yeah, talking yeah, yeah. about it. That's technically a totally different character, Lisa. Just put your favorite Peter Parker out of your head. So whatever. Sensational, amazing, ultimate. They're all just ways of bleeding your money and your love of all things Peter Parker. Well, it's working. It is working. So Sensational Spider-Man Volume 2. Number one, the basic plot synopsis not taken from Goodreads this week, but marvel.fandom.com. A long-lost suitor from Mary Jane's past presents her with a shocking offer. She can walk away from the torment and tragedy of life on the run, and all she has to do is turn in Spider-Man. Given the choice between a fugitive's life and the fame and fortune she left behind to marry Peter Parker, will she take the deal? Meanwhile, across town, Peter Parker brokers the safety of his wife, and Aunt May, even at the cost of his freedom. How much madness and loss can one marriage take? Join us in the retrospective of one of the most enduring love stories in comics. I do appreciate the irony of this story being about, on one side, Mary Jane confronting Agent Brady, or whatever his yeah, name is. Right, that's going correct. Like, You're not taking me in. I refuse to be arrested. And then Peter Parker talking to Detective Lamont going like, please arrest, arrest me. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think structurally it's it's a lot of fun and true to their characters and how they're it's being how their choice is being presented to them in a specific way and how they're reacting to that choice. Yeah. Uh, which ultimately brings them together. But real quick, it's important to note that this story takes place following the crossover Marvel event known as Civil War from Mark Millar and Steve McNiven. In that storyline, the Superhuman Registration Act was implemented and Iron Man and Captain America went to war against each other. Iron Man was pro-registration, Cap was anti. Peter Parker began the story on the pro side of things 
things and revealed his identity to the world via press conference. As the storyline progressed, Peter believed he chose the wrong side and joined up with Captain America, which effectively transformed him into a fugitive, a person who could no longer hide in plain sight since his cover was blown, and his family became targets as well. Aunt May was actually shot by a sniper gunning for Peter. Poor Aunt May. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can understand why Peter Parker's like, just arrest me. Take me out of this situation. I want to relieve my family of my misery once again. I really don't see that solving any of your problems, Peter, because even if you're in jail, villains will still want to get at you and they're going to do it through your your heart. Yeah. And who's going to protect, you know, Aunt May and Mary Jane going forward? Clearly, he's not thinking this. No, no. He's freaking out as he's wont to do. And wearing a fake mustache, which is fun. <laughs> I didn't plan it this way, but both to have and to hold and parallel lives actually have a very similar structure. Right. Where they're both right. retrospectives and they have a very fond, warm nostalgia for continuity, right? But with parallel lives, I feel like they were presenting a thesis statement. The thesis statement being Peter and Mary Jane are very unstable separately. These are the reasons they have to be together and are well-suited for each other. And they were trying to appease fans who were upset at their wedding, which had happened two years previous. And they said, look, Mary Jane's always been meant to be with Peter Parker. Right, right. So they're just essentially writing an essay about these are, this is my five paragraphs and each one has a headline and a support. Yeah, yeah. And that's not what's happening here. In fact, in 2007, just a few months after this storyline, Peter Parker and Mary Jane would be magically annulled. Right. (laughs) I, I think that this comic is definitely trying to prove these two characters are deeply in love and deeply committed to each other. But for me, the flashbacks are kind of telling the story of it was a tough road to hoe to get them together in the first place, considering how different they are. And they both struggled with their emotions for each other. And so the amount of effort that has gone into their relationship then supports them staying together. To me, it feels less destiny than it does in Parallel Lives. I, I haven't quite come to grips with exactly what my feelings are on this particular issue, Maybe you can help me through that. But I found this annual way less satisfying than Parallel Lives. What I like about this comic book is that it presents Peter and MJ at their ultimate low, right? Mm -hmm. They are in fear for their lives and fear for their lives of their loved ones. They have been rejected from society and, you know, they have no one to turn to really. Mm -hmm. And... While they're being presented safe outs that would betray their nature and betray their their loved ones, they are looking back at how did we get here? Yeah. But but they don't present any upsides of them being together necessarily. Oh, I think they do by the end of the book. I think Mm -hmm. they certainly do. But before we can get to that, we have to talk about the beginning, which it turns out is actually the ending of the story. Yeah, it's a bookend. It's a bookend. It's Peter Parker dressed in his black Spider-Man costume. He has taken Mary Jane Watson up to the top of the world to show her a great view of New York City from the spire of the Empire State Building. Yeah. 
I know you have feelings about the black suit. Do you want to talk about the black suit? Oh, I, I mean, real quick. I, you know, this is 2007. The reason he's wearing the black suit is because Spider-Man 3 is coming out and they need to promote the black suit. But... But I always found it weird that Parker returned to the costume that he ditched after the whole Venom business because that suit represents a terrifying moment in his life where he almost lost his wife, Mary Jane, and, you know, Eddie Brock nearly ruined him. I can't imagine wearing the skin of Venom or an approximation of such after having gone through that. Granted, he's worn the black suit again during Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man uh, adjectisless run okay. where he had to go into the sewers and fight Morbius, but he had to be in the sewers. He it needed, was camouflage. He needed camouflage. So yeah. it made sense to me then post-Civil War to wear it as a mourning for the loss of everything that has occurred through those events just never worked for me. Yeah, I can't. If I've worn an outfit to a job interview and not gotten that job, I can't wear that outfit again. <laughs> I don't see it like that. I see it like, why would I wear the skin of my uh, you enemy? Know, of my enemy, Russell, the bully in high school. I wouldn't wear his skin. No. Well, that would be really weird. <laughs> yeah, huh? really weird. I'm not Buffalo Bill. Keep it, keep it, keep it normal, Brad. But that's like a super silly nitpick, and I don't want to get too hung up on that. I don't want to be too fanboyish about the black suit's return. I mean, do you have any feelings about the black suit? Do you like it aesthetically? I also think it's weird because I look at it and I think Venom. Like, why yeah. is he wearing Venom's outfit? Yeah, but, exactly. But it's fine with me. Okay. I'm, I'm cool with it. All right, all right, all right. But let's talk about this scene. I, you know, this is, it opens and they are in total bliss, right? She is in awe of what he has gifted her. You know, they've they've gone swinging before, but apparently Mary Jane has never gone to the very tippy top of the Empire State Building. And she's in awe of it. What's even better is reading this scene after having read the entire issue, knowing that they have just survived a real close call of, uh, you know, of, of, of giving themselves up and dissolving their marriage. Yes. I think that this scene epitomizes something that's essential to their relationship. This idea of when they're together, nothing else really matters. As long as they get time to themselves, they can really appreciate what each other brings to the relationship. And if they were to break up uh, through legal means or other magic means, magic means, they would truly miss these moments, which are extraordinary and cannot possibly be understood from any other perspective, from any other couple, from any, any other friend, family, what have you. They really are savoring it. And I love how Peter Parker builds the suspense of covering her eyes and going like, there is no way you're ready for this. And she's still in wonder of of these things. You know, like I said, they've gone swinging through the city before. She, she's been gifted many, many things, but she's still, you know, um... Mary Jane, the girl next door. Yeah, yeah. And, well, but not, not, not still Mary Jane, the girl next door, but she still cannot believe this incredible being that she she's is not, married to. She's not jaded at all. Not about. jaded at all. And I think the same could be said for Peter Parker. Yeah. And of course it ends with Mary Jane spreading her arms and going up here. We can be anybody we want. Yeah. Right. Which goes back to that masquerade idea of Mary Jane feels this pressure to be this person in public. And now she's as an adult faced being a very public figure, being a famous person and they're 
relationship going on a break and every everything she's been through to kind of cover up who she really is. And with Peter Parker and up on the Empire State Building, she has the freedom to really be herself. Right, no eyes on her. So you turn the page, and on the third page, we have earlier, and we meet Mary Jane encountering Agent Brady, uh, although at the time she doesn't know that. Brady is one of her old security detail when she was, like, super famous. Yeah, yeah, and they almost kissed. Mm-hmm. And uh, he offers to buy her a cup of coffee, and she's kind of resisting, and he's like, you know, I could buy you a cup of coffee. You know, we almost boned once, and yeah. she's like, uh, yeah. okay, you could buy me coffee, I guess, weirdo. Yeah, I mean, and he is a weirdo. There's something off about him, uh, even beyond the fact that he's masquerading as a, a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. But she does agree to have coffee, and he, as long as you stop saying my name out loud, considering I'm, like, a oh, wanted person. Right, right. And he remarks, you know, this is a weird place for you to go. Like, what's so special about the coffee bean? And she reveals to him that this is a place that I've always gone, and it's a, a, a like an escape. And that's when we get our first flashback, which goes back in time into the John Romita art style, and we see Peter with Gwen Stacy and Harry Osborne with Mary Jane. They're on double dates, but with other people. What did you like, think about this? Their dates are other people. Because Parallel Lives did not mention Gwen Stacy at all. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like a passing reference to her, but Jerry Conway was just like, we can't, you know, we're trying to show that these two belong together. We can't bring up true love number one. Right. And now here we are, we meet true love number one, the blonde Gwen Stacy. How do you feel about this uh, exploration of this period in time? I think considering it doesn't really go anywhere, a little awkward. And I just think... You mean the flashback? Yeah, we don't see... Like, they bring up Gwen Stacy, and Gwen Stacy and her death was a pivotal moment in Peter Parker's life, like a, a, like a rehashing of his... But Matt Fraction doesn't really want to deal with he that. He doesn't want to deal with it either, even though I think it's probably really pivotal in both his... Of course. ...and Mary Jane's of life. Because they were such How tight How could it friends. not be, right? Yeah. What I like about this flashback is, is it, it acknowledges that... There was another girl. They did have a very different relationship before they got together, right? So I think it's crucial to show that maybe it wasn't destiny. Yeah. You know, like this this scene does fly in the face of what we saw in Parallel Lives. And I think that's important if you are going to talk about Peter and Mary Jane's relationship as a whole. You're saying that it wasn't destiny, it was like convenience because there's no, only so many people who no, knew he was Spider-Man? No, 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 no. I'm saying that they had a different life before they were together and yeah. given certain circumstances, Peter could still be married to Gwen Stacy. That's true. And that wouldn't be any, you know, plus... Um, it wouldn't be any more or less destiny for him. It would still be Not destiny. It wouldn't be any more or, less or uh, more or less positive. Right, right. I think it would that's just be. true. I think that's true. I think this is also a cute little opposites attract moment where they have their playful banter back and forth. And I think it's a nice little clash between Mary Jane's intuitive nature and Peter Parker's sensing nature. Mm. And you can see how he helps her change her perspective because she goes into this place. Both her and Gwen Stacy are like, this place is a total dive. <laughs> it's a beatnik bar. It's a beatnik bar. And 
People, this is the kind of place where people don't look at us. Like, we're total <laughs> babes, and nobody here is appreciating it. I think further proof that... They're egomaniacs. Ex- <laughs> well, I, I would say another word with an E. They are extroverts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. how come nobody's giving me their but, energy right but now? Like, but that scene there also speaks to the first time that Mary Jane, you know, met Peter Parker and said, face it, Jack, uh, face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot. You know, she knows what she's got, like we said last episode, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she goes on and she goes like, so they walk in. They're like, this doesn't feel right. Like, this place is not the kind of place we usually hang out. We're a little uncomfortable. Then Mary Jane goes like, this coffee is different. This coffee is weird. Uh, 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 It's espresso. It's espresso. And then Peter goes into sensory mode. Science. Exactly. Going like, you have to appreciate what made this coffee. It takes 30 milliliters of 90 degrees centigrade water forced through 10 grams of fine, finely, finely ground coffee at 130 PSI to produce this. And Gwen Stacy goes, seriously, you two are the dorkiest dorks that ever dorked. Like, they're always going into this little banter where... Mary Jane is stating her reaction according to her feelings, and then Peter Parker goes out and corrects her according to the sensory experience. So a moment like that shows why Matt Fraction is great as a writer, is that he does cut right into who Peter Parker is, who Gwen Stacy is, who Mary Jane is, and who Harry Osborn is over the introduction of espresso. What's a little weird about this flashback is that everyone's dressed in 60s attire. They have the look of John Romita's art. And this is still a contemporary comic. So, like, how long ago was this literally in terms of the character on the Empire State Building? And they always look the same age. It's it's interesting. I don't know. Comics. I kind of love it. But one last detail that I feel like really puts a button in... Mary Jane having her perspective changed by Peter's more sensory uh-huh. perspective is she's going, this place is not special. This place is weird. This place isn't honoring me as a vixen. And he points at the tin ceilings, uh-huh. right? He's using his eyes and he's looking around and he's observing the detail and he points at the tin ceilings and he goes, Tin ceilings, this place has history. Mm -hmm. This place is the old New York, the kind of stuff they get rid of these days. So he's encouraging her to go, like, look beyond your feelings. Look beyond that sense of me, 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 and look around, and you're going to see some really extraordinary, cool stuff that deserves to be honored. And after that conversation, clearly she goes to that same dive every day to the point where she recognizes when the staff changes. From there, we hop back to the conversation between Detective Lamont and Peter Parker, where he's bargaining for immunity for his family in exchange for him giving up. Lamont's a little standoffish. We have another flashback to Flash Thompson's going away party. We see Gwen Stacy and Mary Jane on the dance floor. Boogieing it out like two extroverts. And I love the final panel where you see Flash Thompson, Harry Osborn, and Peter Parker just totally smitten by the two ladies. Gobsmacked. Poor Flash. We go back to... Mary Jane and Agent Brady, and she's trying to explain to him the sacrifices that they have endured to be where they are today. And we get the third flashback, which actually goes to a classic 
issue of Amazing Spider-Man, number 87, written by Lee and drawn by Romita, in which Peter Parker is suffering from the flu and accidentally reveals his Spider-Man identity to Harry, Gwen, Mary, and Gwen's dad, Captain Stacy. I found this whole page really baffling. Why? Because... I didn't know, like, I don't know the context for oh, this particular oh, oh. scene. You're like, what is Peter Parker doing? We see the first panel, and, and it looks like a party full of people. Uh-huh, There's uh-huh. all kinds of strangers. There's another blonde back there listening <laughs> to music. It's her birthday party. There's one... It's um, Gwen's birthday party. There's one guy, he's sitting there, he's playing the guitar. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we cut to... Um, Peter Parker arriving at the party and like you can't tell in this panel that everybody else has left and so he walks in and he has these like little sparkles around him Yeah, yeah. where I'm just like I don't know is he under a spell like what <laughs> he's clearly or is he just confused and then he just announces to what looks like a room full of people like that you he's know, Spider-Man that he's Spider-Man I didn't I didn't understand like why well, did he do he that he has the flu Lisa yeah he did it on accident but don't worry he eventually hires the Prowler to dress like Spider-Man and show these people that, no, 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 Peter Parker couldn't possibly be Spider-Man. It all works out. No big deal. Do you think that they thought he was, like, suffering delusions of grandeur or that he They think he had the flu, probably. Bizarre. Yeah, I understand what you're saying because the sensational Spider-Man annual itself doesn't do any work to explain what is happening there. You're just seeing this absurd memory. And it is interesting to me that because you haven't read a lot of those classic comics that it just... It was just a roadblock to me turning the page because I am staring at this going like, what is happening in this scene? <laughs> well, okay, but now that you know the mechanics of that narrative flashback, what about what Matt Fraction is introducing uh, to that memory. I think what he's introducing is the idea of, like, Spider-Man wasn't just Peter Parker alone. When Spider-Man started to reveal himself and rely on these close relationships, everybody, in a way, became part of Spider-Man. Even if they didn't know it, his actions as Spider-Man were affecting their routine, yeah, but don't you think that that then supports what Brady is saying? And like, well, why don't you cut yourself of this gentleman right yes, now? Yes, yes, but then there are other scenes after this scene. Okay. <laughs> and then we go back to Lamont and Peter Parker, and you get the impression that Lamont wants nothing to do with Peter Parker's whining. He rips that mustache right off of his face, and it's, you know, he, he gives him a, a, a reality check. He gives us him a stern talking to. He has the abs- the like the opposite perspective of Brady going like, what's going to happen to your wife if you yeah. turn yourself in and there's nobody left to protect her? And of course, as a Spider-Man comic book reader, we're like, yeah, Lamont's right. <laughs> yeah. So so Lamont says, think of your wife, Peter. And Peter goes like, I always think about my wife. And he recounts how his parents died when he was really young, and he and Aunt May and Uncle Ben became a family. He has a photo from his wallet, and it's the most adorable photo ever. It's Aunt May, Uncle Ben, and young Peter Parker, and they're all wearing, like, happy smiley face Matching shirts. Matching shirts. Oh. That's so sweet. As a kid, I always fantasized about, like, 
carrying pictures of my boo in my wallet. And is there a photo of me in your wallet? I mean, now we have smartphones, so we don't have to carry. We don't like seems ridiculous, like to print a photo and then put it in your wallet. I think I demand uh, a boo photo in your wallet, Lisa. We're gonna have to make that happen. Oh, so cute. Um, But after that little like, I wasn't lying. Background. (laughs) It can happen. Okay. Good. Okay, I don't know how much color ink we have, but uh, well, we can we can go to Kinkos. Sounds good. <laughs> sorry, I sorry, I'm interrupting you. Keep going. So Peter Parker gives Lamont the Peter Parker story 101, yeah, yeah. and he goes on to say, "So Uncle Ben died. It was bad. It's what gets me out of bed every morning. But knowing that Mary Jane is in that bed waiting, that's the only thing that lets me stop every night. That was." kind of the conclusion of the parallel lives idea storyline this thing where if peter didn't have mary jane to give him something to live he'd go full batman he would yeah exactly he would he would not stop trying to get over the guilt of mary jane centers him that's right yeah so that then goes into the next flashback And what's so great about this one is it starts off from Mary Jane's perspective, but then shifts to Peter Parker's perspective. In my notes, I call this the mistletoe conundrum. Yeah, the mistletoe conundrum. Okay, love this. The overarching events of this scene, without all of that pesky subtext, is... Mary Jane and Peter have exchanged mixtapes and Peter's mixtape, instead of having like songs about, you know, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He put uh, a lecture part of a PBS special about rhinos Uh and then a Feynman lecture Uh about magnetic fields. Yeah, that's some strong hints there, Lisa. So Mary Jane is kind of teasing him because it's like, you're supposed to put music on a mixtape. What, like what kind of what kind of person doesn't put music on a mixtape? And Peter gets a little defensive, and he was like, "Well, because if I put music on a mixtape, it would be fake. I didn't want to give you something fake. I wanted you to give you something that really was important so to me." So her gentle teasing puts him on the defensive, and then throws the whole conversation off. Right, and um, she goes like, "Despite you being a big dork, um, I got you something." And then she pulls out. A Santa Claus hat with some mistletoe on it. Oh, hell yeah. Hoping. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To get a smooch. Yeah. Yeah. And Peter Parker pretends to not get the message and then just walks away. Uh, It's the worst. It's the worst. It's a really awkward scene. But we see the scene from Mary Jane's perspective. What's, What's going on in her head? So she is teasing him and kind of trying to do the thing they would do when they were just friends of just kind of bantering back and forth. But she's listening to herself now and going like, why am I being so mean yeah. to Peter? <laughs> like, I want him to to like me and want me and I'm being a monster. And then uh, when he's like, I didn't want to give you something fake. She's just like, I'm horrible. And she she's starts, full of regret. Everything that she's saying, she's regretting the moment it slips out of her lips. And she goes like, I'm and she thinks of it as a reflection of herself. I'm a horrible and unlovable hag, and I will die alone. That is her subtext. <laughs> and then um, she goes for the hat. She's super nervous about it. Please, oh, please, please, Peter, don't freak out at this move. And then she puts the hat on and immediately regrets it because he immediately starts pulling away. And she thinks to herself, you freaked him out, you desperate loser. Uh, So now we get the flashback from Peter's perspective. 
And we get to see all the doubt that is rattling around in his head. You know, he immediately goes, oh, God, she's thinking you're a giant, boring turbo nerd. You totally blew this. Stupid. You stupid, boring geek. I bet you he was feeling really confident about the whole magnetic fields thing. He's (laughs) like, this mixtape is supposed to say how I felt. And uh, I nailed this test. Yeah, he overthought that. Yeah. What I don't understand is how why he didn't act on the whole mistletoe thing, because he clearly understood what he what it meant, and he completely whiffed. Yeah, you know, he says in his mind, oh, mistletoe, that means she wants you to kiss. Kiss her, you chicken. He, you know, and he wants to, but he's a dude, Lisa, and he's, he's also a nerdy dude who is, like I said, full of doubt and a little self-loathing, and uh, he can't... He could have pecked her on the cheek. The fact that he's just like, and have a nice afternoon. <laughs> he could have, but he's Peter Parker, yeah. right? He's not Spider-Man in that moment. Spider-Man would have kissed her. Peter Parker, he whiffed on the whole magnetic fields thing. He's failed, and he can't recover from that. I really think that it was Mary Jane's bad because you can't really manufacture a first kiss. Mm, She kind of does in the next flashback. Mm, Hold your horses, tiger. (laughs) Okay. I think it's interesting that one of the most iconic Peter Parker, Mary Jane moments, the first Mm. date, the blind date, the face it tiger. Lamont. Yeah, he, it's not told in a flashback. It's told in dialogue. Uh-huh. So it's a conversation between Parker and Lamont, and he, P- P- uh, Peter Parker is recounting the famous line. He, you know, He's whispering it to himself, face it, tiger, you hit the jackpot. And Lamont's like, excuse me, what's going on? And then he tries to explain to him that that's the first thing she ever said to me. And what's his response, Lisa? And you didn't run away screaming? <laughs> it is a red flag. Like, that's a pretty confident way to show up at a day like ding 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 cash and prices i'm behind door number one and you picked correctly i don't know yeah 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 i would love that lamont's got a point there but he didn't run away he stuck by this gorgeous uh, woman in front of him and he says like what what it was for him was the idea that she was so unlike him. Yeah. Where he was always so logical and he could not figure her out. Lisa, if a 10 shows up on your doorstep, no matter what she says, you go through with those first couple of dates. Yeah, but what Peter's saying is what kept him there sure. was... A, a, a real human. Yeah. <laughs> a relationship developed from that, thank God. But it was based on their differences, not their similarities. Right. Like, Peter goes on to say... I'm a scientist, and my job, this isn't a direct quote, but my job is to understand things, to look at the evidence and pull it apart and come to an understanding. And he could never do that with Mary Jane. And so she fascinated him. And just like he changed her perspective on the coffee bean with him going like, live in the present, see what's around you. She changes his perspective and says, there's more to me than this, the surface, than, than the jackpot, this, than the sensory overload that I am as being an eleven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> back in the present, back at the diner, Peter Parker is sitting with Lamont, and he gets a page from Mary Jane, and that kind yeah. of proves Lamont's point. Like you, I can't arrest you. Mary Jane needs you, and she needs you now. Right, 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 right. Like we were saying earlier, if uh, he was in jail, this would happen to her, and there would be no one to respond. Exactly. So 
Lamont says, go save your wife and never talk to me again. And Peter Parker goes on to say something and Lamont is like, go. And Peter Parker's like, gone. Then back at the coffee bean, Mary Jane and Brady are finishing up their conversation. And she's thinking back to the time when Peter and her were on a break and she was in L.A. living the Hollywood lifestyle. She had never been richer. She had never been, you know, more uh, popular. She'd reached peak fame and she was still sad. She was missing. Something. It was the worst time in her life. And Brady was like, hey. I was there. I was there. And he goes like, I felt something with you. We could have been something. And Mary Jane is like, uh, we're not star-crossed lovers. Like, you're not like the one who got away or anything. You're just some dude. Exactly. He's my husband. He's, he's my husband and you're just some dude. And that, that is cool. Yes. And that's when we go to the final flashback, probably the most epic flashback of the entire issue, The Amazing Spider-Man issue number 143, The First Kiss, as written by Jerry Conway originally, who also wrote Parallel Lives. And we get to see the first kiss at JFK Airport from both perspectives. We get both captions, one from Peter, one from MJ. This is another one that also confused me just because I didn't understand the context. Not as badly as that other flashback. Uh-huh. But with this one, I'm like, who is Robertson? <laughs> yeah, you'd never met Robbie before. No. Yeah, yeah he's uh, like uh, number two around the Daily Bugle. And in issue 143, what's going on is that J. Jonah Jameson has been kidnapped by Cyclone. And Robertson and Peter Parker are going to France, to Paris, to pay the ransom money. And Peter needs a ride to the airport, so Mary Jane offered. Yeah, and she's buying time with him, going like, let's order some coffee. And Peter Parker being, you know, a judger, going like, (laughs) I'm on a schedule. I really don't have time for coffee, but not wanting to let her down. And so she's ordering coffee and doing something that I think is a real extrovert kind of thing. And it's something that you do. Oh, no. But she's, like, doing bits. She's doing bits with Robertson. She's doing bits with the barista at the coffee place. When you say doing bits, I know what you mean, but maybe our listeners don't. She's putting on a little bit of a show. She's joking around. She is calling Robertson all kinds of names. She calls Paris gay Paris. Like, she's commanding a little attention like one thing that brad loves to do listeners i'm just talking to you i'm not talking to brad one thing brad likes to do is when we're walking through the grocery store <laughs> no, don't tell he, him. <laughs> he likes to pretend uh he likes to start little fights and arguments <laughs> for, for the benefit of the people walking past i don't want the milk <laughs> yeah. you always want the milk yeah, I, don't I sound like a maniac when you <laughs> tell people that because yeah, i'm a maniac. you are a maniac <laughs> you're having fun and that's what she doing and she's doing it to impress Peter because she loves Peter and you're doing it to impress me and I promise you it works Yay! Um, but Peter then asks the million dollar question hey why do you call me that why do you call me tiger all the time this is brutal I don't like it yeah I don't like it in the original context and I still don't like it in this context she says oh Petey I call you tiger because you're not oh what does that mean? It means he's not tiger. He's the opposite of tiger. He's a little kitten. He, you know, he's a little, you know, squirt. He's his his personality is meek. Yeah, so she's being ironic. Uh, she's cutting him at the knees. She's pushing him she's into manning na- up. She's she's nagging him. Yeah, she's nagging him. But it totally works. That's the first kiss. And I mean, it's a great panel. And look at Robbie there. 
I, I even enjoy Ross Andrews interpretation of Robbie in this moment in the amazing Spider-Man 143 even better because he has a bright beaming smile on. He's been waiting for this moment for so long. Finally, Peter can get some and be happy. And the subtext alternating in pink and blue. Finally, first, our first kiss. Finally. And the final words before Peter boards the plane is I'll be back. Subtext, I swear, for you, I'll always be back. And she replies, I'm wait- I'll am be waiting. Subtext, always and forever. So that whole playful back and forth that led up to their first kiss, nothing has ever been like that between her and Brady. And that's what she's challenging is like, you're not, you're not uh, true love. You know, there was nothing like this. We, we did not have a real connection yeah, right before that flashback, he tells her, like, I want you to imagine what Peter Parker could possibly say that would make this mess you call life any better. And it goes into that scene. Yeah, so yeah. she's going like, it's moments like this, these shared playful moments. She doesn't us. need to defend her romance with Peter Parker to this dude. Douche. Oh, a douche, yeah. Oh, let's go douche. <laughs> <laughs> so... He finally, Brady goes like, I'm waiting to arrest you. And she goes, go ahead. And then uh, Brady sees that she's left her little spider pager in her seat. And it turns out what she was doing was not reminiscing about her relationship with Peter Parker, but stalling so he could come and rescue her. And he bursts through the window and uh, he sweeps her up and they get away. It's a great bit of sequential art because we see Peter Parker swinging towards the window. And then we have a series of panels of Agent Brady freaking out and all the guards in the coffee bean freaking out. And then we turn the page and it's like this almost splash page of Peter Parker, no mask on, smashing through the glass. Yeah. And he says, hi, honey. Hi, honey. So and then. Cute. They, you know, pick up, fly out the window, and we we go back to the Empire State Building. She starts apologizing for falling for Brady's shtick because they had some history, and he tells her, no, don't apologize, baby. You never have to apologize for this, for these incidents because of me that happen in, in your life. Yeah, we're doing this together. This is not you doing everything. We're in this together. Right. And she says, oh, he says, I love you. Just hang on, okay? And she goes, where are we going? And then they go to the Empire State Building. And their final conversation is Peter going like, you could still, you could still leave and get away. He's still trying to bargain. <laughs> if you wanted, turn, turn yourself in and I could hide somewhere. And she says, no. And he tries to go on, wait for them, no. Give them a good show then, no. Slip away, no, tiger. One, no. Two, it'd never work. And three, no. Now say it back. No. There you go. Where it's just like, this is our life. This is how we operate. And there's no getting away from it because this is how we want to live. It is very similar to how Jerry Conway ends Parallel Lives with Mary Jane resetting where they are in their relationship, not Peter Parker. Mm -hmm. Maybe the rest of the world thinks marriage is something to do between other marriages, Mm -hmm. but it means something to me. You're my partner and my husband and I love you. Awesome. He's not some dude to her. So, Lisa, my question to you then becomes, at the start of this conversation, you were saying how you didn't feel like 
to have and to hold presented any upsides to this couple being together. Do you feel this way now that we've gone through the book? I do think that my perspective has changed a little bit talking about the book. It shows that they give each other new perspective through him introducing her to the sensing world, her introducing him to the intuitive world, and how Peter Parker is really motivated by his relationship with Mary Jane, the idea that she's waiting for him at the end of his day. But I still don't quite understand what's in it for Mary Jane. This book isn't, it it isn't about Mary Jane. She doesn't have any aspirations or ideals outside of Peter Parker and Spider-Man. She's let those, she's let those go. And it's about how she is ultimately content to be a supporting character for Peter. Well, uh, yes. I mean, the gaze of this comic is always going to be Spider-Man's gaze. It is, you know, the sensational Spider-Man. It's not the sensational Spider-Man and the amazing Mary Jane Watson. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of a problem narratively uh, in relationships of this ilk in comic books. You know, Aquaman and Mira, Mira can go off and be her own character and be a total badass and she can have her own comic book, but rarely is Mary Jane afforded that opportunity. It does seem to be happening more and more within Nick Spencer's current run on The Amazing Spider-Man and Brian Michael Bendis used Mary Jane in an interesting way with the Invincible Iron Man storyline. But for the most part, she's always going to be the romantic interest to Spider-Man. But even that can create some intrinsic motivation. And really, what the final argument came down to with Brady was not like Peter Parker needs me or Peter Parker completes me. It's I've committed to, to this, this guy. To yeah, this yeah, guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I, I see what you're saying there. I agree. I and agree. It's, and her flashbacks are all about her kind of getting roped into the whole but Spider-Man what, but, deal. But what I like about it is it's Spider-Man is a third character in this storyline, right? It's not Peter Parker and Spider-Man. It's Spider-Man is in between Mary Jane and Peter Parker. Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting. And I think Fraction and LaRocca do something um, emotionally true with that, even if it ultimately ends up being, as you said, the story of confirming her place next to his side. I'm really, I'm enjoying what you're saying right now. So in this storyline, do you think that the parallel lives reveal that Mary Jane fell in love with Peter Parker when she knows he was Spider-Man? Do you think that that, Lisa, in my in my brain, we'd have to interview uh, Matt Fraction to get that answer. But for Brad, that origin just doesn't work for me. I don't like the origin of Mary Jane's known that Peter is Spider-Man since nearly day one. I've never liked that. I don't like the retcon of Parallel Lives. I enjoyed it within the context of that book as an original graphic novel. But in my head, that's not how it went down. I do like, like I'm, I'm now stealing your interpretation and going like, <laughs> Well, P- Mary Jane is in love with Peter Parker, and her job is to protect Peter Parker mm, from mm, Spider-Man. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Spider-Man is like that flu. Spider-Man is a thing that happened to <laughs> Peter Parker, yeah. the boy she loved and the boy that was her friend, and now it's her job 
as his wife to protect him from that situation. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. I, I like that. that. That's I, way better. I, I mean, is that what I said? Uh, I don't. It's how I interpret it, and I, I think you're brilliant. All right, yay. and I'll be your supporting character literally anytime. <laughs> ditto, ditto, ditto. Okay, so that pretty much wraps up the Sensational Spider-Man Volume Two, Number One, to have and to hold. Now we need to discuss. What do we see of ourselves in this relationship as interpreted in this comic book? What have we learned? How will we apply it to our relationship? Ah, uh, you go first. Uh, okay. Um, well, I do put myself in the Peter Parker role in this relationship where often I feel like my actions are putting us into peril, that uh, choices that I have made um, you know, are, are, are affecting you, and because of my actions, I'm harming you. And what I see at the end of this book is Mary Jane going, Guy, it's a relationship. There's two in this deal, and you need to reconcile with that and realize that I've made choices as well and that if I did not like the things that you were doing, I would tell you and we would work it out together. Yeah, that's true. Like just recently, uh-huh. you were fretting about our our money troubles. We are we're both artists. We're both independent contractors, uh-huh. I guess. Uh-huh. And um, you were worried about us not having enough spending money for Comic Con. <laughs> so without talking to me, you put up. Almost all of our original comic book art. I put on, up three pieces. I know, but they're three great pieces. Uh, the Eric Powell goon art, the Powers art. And I was like, hey, granted, you bought those pieces of art when they're not together, but now they're, they're ours. And also, I don't like, yeah, we don't have as much money to go to Comic-Con as we did when you were miserable working retail and I was breaking my heart working in a classroom, but we still, uh, you, you had a crisis, you resolved it on your own and then you were presenting me uh, with, how I with fixed your it. solution, which is selling some things that I love. Yeah. So listeners, uh, head on over to eBay. <laughs> oh no! Don't tell them. Don't tell them. Cause we have also after not getting like after having a, a converse, like a real heart to heart where we talked about other stuff, not just selling comic book stuff, but had a heart to heart. We agreed that if no takers come on eBay, we're going to take those pieces of art down. They're, we're going to put them up for one week, and then if they haven't sold, then I will not sell them. Right. Yeah. Where I'm a lot more of the type of going like, to me, everything is a crisis, and I'm airing grievances constantly. I'm constantly reaching out for solutions and open conversations. Sure. Where you want to avoid the feelings part or or the in not not so much the feelings part but the inconveniencing me with your feelings part so this book leaves peter and mary jane in a very stable place and can we just go back to the last line of the comic where mary jane states maybe the rest of the world thinks marriage is something to do between other marriages but it means something to me you're my partner and my husband and i love you this is our life again Four months later, Marvel destroys the marriage, right. annuls the marriage, erases it from the timeline. They were this annual is essentially 
to go like to to make sure that your heart is really broken when their yeah, relationship it, is dissolved. It, 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 when they finally annul it, it is shattering to the fans of the comic who have been in this relationship for. 20 years. Yeah, Team um, MJ and Peter. Yeah, yeah. Like, whoa, okay. <laughs> That's a hell of a place to end this book. It's pretty damn cruel, actually. Totally, totally. But going back to our love expert, going back to Dr. Avila and the Myers-Briggs love type situation, we talked about how Dr. Avila found in his research that couples stay together, might be attracted because of their differences, but they stay together for their similarities. Mm -hmm. Peter Parker and MJ have some major differences. MJ is an extrovert. Peter is an introvert. Dr. Avila actually in the book says that that is particularly trying for... uh, Couples. For heterosexual couples because of the thought of masculinity that the male should be the powerful one in the relationship, not the female. So relationships should be male forward. Yeah. Um, Then we don't have that. Well, no, you're the extrovert and I'm the introvert. So that's not an issue for us. Also the sensing and intuitive, like misunderstandings like the Feynman lecture are going to be, Reoccurring. Yeah, in their relationship. Luckily, they're both feeling. And then I think they're both kind of mid. Well, I think that Peter is kind of middling between judging and perceiving, though he's judging tendency. So I think that they can kind of meet in the middle with this one. But I'm wondering how their differences in upcoming stories are going to create conflict. Mm, mm, mm. I would like to see some conflict in between these couples. We've had two books telling us they're meant to be together. Right, 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 right. I would like to see some conflict, please. Okay, let's see if we can do that. So where are we headed to next? What's our next Spider-Man Mary Jane story? So originally, I wanted to read Spider-Man Blue, which is another... Retroactive story. No, Brad, I said no. But after reading Sensational Spider-Man, I said, "Mm, that's probably not a good idea. I would like to see like an arc. Yes. So that's what we are going to do, right? Uh, Peter Parker and Mary Jane forever, right? Well, uh, not so fast. I think we have to tackle the comic that shattered this relationship for a decade and counting. One More Day, written by J. Michael Straczynski and illustrated by Joe Quesada. I've actually never read this comic because as much as I loved Straczynski's run at the beginning, it really burned me out by the end, which, as our listeners know, is a reoccurring problem for me and comic books in general. Uh, At the time, I was super frustrated by this editorial mandate, and I gave up on Spidey books for a long time because I really felt like Peter Parker and Mary Jane belonged together. I've gotten over that feeling in recent times. It's, you know, 10 plus years have happened. I've gone on to other characters. It doesn't hurt so much to contemplate this diabolical force coming in to magically erase the couple. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm actually pretty darn excited to take a gander at this controversial storyline. Okay, I'm in. All right, so let's do it. 
Well, we better pack that volume in our suitcase because we're going to San Diego Comic-Con. That's right. Actually, as you're listening to this episode, we are in San Diego right now, just days away from our favorite time of the year. I hope our listeners checked out our last bonus episode, which was a survival guide guest starring Darren Smith and Brian Young of the In the Mouth of Darkness podcast. And... Our next episode this week will actually be not one more day, but one that we've recorded at the convention center. We may even have a special guest or two for that episode as well. And yeah, follow us on all social medias at CBCC podcast because we're going to have so many cool Instagrams and photos and videos that you're going to want to see. Lisa, where can our listeners find you online? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars and a sweet review on iTunes. And we also have an email address, Brad. CBCCPodcast at gmail.com. And find me at MouthDork on all social medias. And until next time... Keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.